Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the November Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to Heritage Financial's Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and investment universe right now. So, Bob, another month and it feels like another change in direction for the markets. We don't usually analyze markets month to month as long-term investors, but sometimes a bear market and a potential recession can do that to you. We talked in our October podcast about the strong start to the month after a painful September, and despite some volatility in October, stocks in the U.S. and internationally did well, I believe, global and, and U.S. stocks. There's been more talk and prognostications about whether we're going to have a recession or we're in one already. More companies have been reporting earnings with some big tech names struggling, which has been a theme of ours in the past. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, well, it's an interesting introduction, Sammy. Because uh, on one hand, it seems like month to month, the story has been quite different. September was a terrible month for stocks and October was a great month. So you have a totally different result in markets. But at the same time, we've been saying the same thing. It's a very uh, redundant year with what's going on. The story is inflation's high. The Fed's fighting inflation. Fed's raising rates and same old. So it, it is interesting that... Um, Markets are so sensitive to the course of this and seem to be getting surprised so easily. Um, but I think, um, in short, we're, we're nearing the end. We're closer to the end than the beginning. Oh, wow. As far as the, the, the Fed raising rates. So okay. that they'll raise rates 75 basis points. And that's expected to be the last 75 basis point increase of that magnitude. Um, so following, it might be a 50, a 25, and then done. So, when you say that's expected, Bob, are you just talking about what the market's expecting, which you can see in 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 the futures, or wh where are you getting this from? That's what the market's um, pricing in. But the Fed has been you know, talking to a Wall Street Journal reporter who leaks it out to the market, and they don't want to surprise people. So um, we've seen that basically they are doing what the market expects. Like the Fed and the market are one. So the 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 last one of this magnitude, but there could be smaller rate hikes. And that's what you talked about when you talked about the end. To be clear, you're not calling for the immediate uh, end of this uh, bear market. But where is inflation then? I know we get an inflation number monthly. Well, we get a couple different numbers, but once a month. Where is inflation in, in all this? What, what have you been seeing? Yeah, so inflation, the, the CPI print um, continues to remain elevated. But there is lagging data in CPI. The um, largest largest component of CPI, we might have talked about this last time, is shelter. Shelter, think housing. It's measured by owner's equivalent rent, so rents. And the last month, it was the biggest component that, as, not just by size, but by magnitude, it increased it. Um, well, meanwhile, while well, housing prices are declining. So you're seeing housing prices declining for the second month in a row, and yet in CPI, shelter is um, pushing inflation up. It's coming in hot. So there's a lag in that. Um, a way to think it through is rents um, typically have a one-year term. So if someone's renewing their rent as of November 1st, 
a good chance your rent's higher now than it was a year ago. The landlord can say, well, values are up and I'm increasing it. So you see inflation there, but month to month, housing's turning. So th there will be a, a bit of a lag before that makes its way into CPI through the ownership equivalent rent. So critical question is, will does the Fed know that it's lagging data? <laughs> And yeah. will they be bold enough to actually believe that it will flow through or are they going to wait for it to come through? If that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense and it, it you know, connects to what you opened with, which in terms of the rate hike, it will be the last one of this magnitude. And I, I kind of cut you off a little bit because I wanted you to explain where that was coming from. But what are the implications of that? You know, why do, why do you lead off with that today? Well, it's just, it's been the story of the year. It's, it's inflation's high, high. Um, the Fed is raising rates to hit inflation. And I mean, they used to do 25 basis points at a time and a double move would be a 50 and they've been doing triples. So yep. we're looking at a fourth triple and the markets are pricing in a 50 and then a 25. So you, you hear like the, the plane analogies, soft landing, hard landing, like the plane's coming down. They've done a lot of rate hikes and then it's kind of like step back and see what happens to the economy because there's a lag in the effects of their actions. So they raise rates and then see what happens. So did you answer your own question there? Is The market is expecting the end of the 75 basis point rate hikes. Does that lead you to believe that the Fed understands the impact of the lagging housing data on the CPI? There is some of that, but it's also um, the market expectations are based on Fed expectations. So the Fed showing dot plots, the Fed talking about what they're thinking. So it, it, it is all kind of uh, one and the same. Has the Fed or any of the other central banks that have been tightening, have they kind of signaled that they're easing their stance going forward on this tighter monetary policy? And has that contributed to any of the market rebound in October? That's, I think, the, the big thing to look out for at a press conference. Like, okay, guys, you've been raising rates a lot. Like, are you starting to look at look for damage and starting to you know, have what they might call a more dovish tone? We talked about it briefly at the last podcast, um, looking at global risk, um, but not much. They've been more in the camp of we're aggressive, we're going to cause pain. Okay. No, I understood. And we've talked about a recession and that the marketing the market is a leading indicator. But I think we haven't maybe given enough attention to the idea that people should know not every bear market does signal a recession. You do have bear markets that don't lead to recessions. This 25% sell-off that we're having or that we're in the midst of is probably telling us something, but GDP growth in the third quarter was strong after a couple of, of negative quarters to start the year. Unemployment is still strong. What do you see with the economy and also of your viewpoint that we we will not avoid a, a soft landing, that we will have a, a recession? Yeah, unemployment is the, the real stubborn factor with unemployment being low. And it, it really, we're not seeing what they call softening in the labor market. And I, I do think we need to see it. The Fed's not going to rest until we see it because the, the best predictor of inflation is wages. Okay. And when you have a tight labor market, so say more jobs than people, um, then people, you know, companies fight over employees and, and you, know, you see wages go up. And when wages go up, people spend more money and that gives you an inflation spiral. 
So they do need to see a softening of the labor market. Otherwise, inflation won't get under control. You're not going to have a hot labor market and 2% inflation. So I guess that's where fundamentally they're going to have to raise rates and keep at it until wages slow and labor market softens and that's your, your shallow recession. So more rate hikes, but maybe not more 75 basis point rate hikes to continue on on what we started with or what we opened with. Okay. You're nodding your head there. So, you know, another thing you touched on, housing is is struggling. Uh, that, that happened pretty quickly, I, I would say. Um, other pockets of excess in the market are are being hit. I touched on, you know, large cap tech names, well, whether or not they reported great earnings or disappointing earnings. Some of those names, those Fang M stocks have continued to get hit pretty hard. Are you surprised by the housing rollover? Are you surprised by some of the growthier areas of the market, you know, struggling uh, and continuing to struggle this year? No, definitely not housing. I'd like to say that that's one of the things we've been talking about for you know, going on, I don't know, four months or so that, that this was coming. I mean, even just you know, housing giving up six months of gains, you know, residential real estate just went through the roof during COVID. It overshot and that's it's coming back down. Um, so that to me makes perfect sense. I think there's more to come over the next year as that sorts itself out. The other area that um, you know, we, we've seen come down um, just broadly that, that I would say makes sense is what I would call unprofitable. Business is unprofitable. Tech is, is right. kind of the tag name. And that stuff needs to come down and, and in many cases go bankrupt. It's just a matter of time. You, you can't just have businesses around not making money backed by private equity money indefinitely. It just doesn't work. So seeing that deflate um, makes sense to me. So you can get into specific companies like Facebook or Meta and what's going on there. It is starting or, to- Or even Google and Amazon's earnings have yeah. uh, uh, have led to, um, I think, weaker stock performance this year than the overall markets. Yeah. Yeah. So Facebook slash Meta, that's priced at, you know, it's cheaper than the market because of the challenges that they have. They're very real business challenges. The CEO is chasing after the metaverse that saying, I think, might make money in 2030 or something. Yeah, like company that. specific challenges really, That's right? Yeah. Way out there. So the market's punishing them and they're trading at a discount. A company like Google is right around the market, a tad bit of a premium for a good business. That to me seems pretty reasonable. Um, so much better than it was almost double the valuation uh, a year, year and a half ago. So you touched on housing. It is d- declining, but it hasn't led to an increased ability for people who want to borrow and buy their first home to buy because mortgage rates have skyrocketed. What is your outlook, if if you have one at all, just in terms of will mortgage rates back down? Or maybe since you don't have a crystal ball, what would cause mortgage rates to, to back down so that there can be a little bit more of a balance uh, in, in terms of, yeah, prices have gone down, but your rate has doubled. So, you know, you really haven't improved your affordability. Yeah. Well, mortgage rates are tied to uh, the 10-year treasury and the 10-year treasury is kind of the barometer for risk appetite in markets. And you'll see, and it, it ties a little bit to Fed policy. So I think you're not going to see the 10-year treasury fall until inflation is no longer a concern. So when the Fed is off the war raising rate direction, 
um, and more we're concerned about deflation and falling asset prices, that's when you'll see the 10-year treasury yield fall when the Fed starts cutting rates. And then you'll have better mortgage levels and that that's them stimulating the economy. The Fed has been supporting though the mortgage market, right? With quantitative easing and bond purchases that they have stopped as well. So has that been a factor in, in maybe how high rates have gone up even relative to the 10-year treasury? You really want to get technical, Sammy. The, the Fed <laughs> um, was doing quantitative uh, easing by buying mortgages. So they were basically creating money out of thin air and just buying mortgages, which was pushing yields down in the mortgage market. They stopped that. What they have not done is reversed it. So they have not done quantitative tightening in the sense of selling mortgages. Okay, they just stopped buying. They stopped buying them and they're okay. letting them mature. So okay. they're, they're letting them what they call roll off the balance sheet. They bought the asset and it matures and it rolls off the balance sheet, it disappears. Um, some market participants, some bond managers are a little concerned that the Fed may start selling mortgages. Oh, wow. Okay. And that would then really push up mortgage rates. So it's a tool. Everyone talks about the Fed funds rate, uh, us included. But one of the tools they have is open market activity, like quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. And the tool they have that they could use would be selling mortgages. And, and why uh, would they do that, Bob, if they thought that their rate hikes weren't having enough of an impact on the inflation story? Exactly. Yep. Okay. So that that's in their pocket. Um, but I don't think they're going to need to do that because we're seeing housing cool off. If housing okay. wasn't cooling off, that's what they definitely could do would be sell mortgages. And then you'd have, it's what they call market technicals, and you'd see um, just more pressure on rising mortgage rates. So that's a possibility. It's not what you think will happen. So basically, then it comes back down to the same story we've been talking about since this podcast started, which is inflation and rising rates. When we see some light at the end of the tunnel with inflation and rate hikes, mortgage rates may may stabilize or or even level off. And then you do get a little bit of a, a benefit as a buyer of the cheaper prices, but not the crazy higher rates. Yeah. Yeah. The yield curve's inverted, um, showing that the Fed funds rate getting, you know, at its peak at somewhere around Q1 or Q2 of next year. Yep. And then it declines. So markets expecting Fed to raise, raise rate, and then start cutting. And it's around that time when they start cutting that you would see rates fall um, and mortgage rates go down and start to become cheaper and homes become more affordable. Well, we've been in this regime of what people would call artificially low rates for a while until this year, obviously. What is a more normalized interest rate environment for the 10-year for mortgages? What you, you know, I, I just worry people are just going to anchor forever to that, you know, two to three percent mortgage that they could have got and you know, maybe delay or avoid home purchases. What is a more normalized interest rate environment? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so I go back to the 10-year treasury and what is a good fair value, good yield on a 10-year treasury, where should it be? And if you say inflation should be in the 2 to 3% range over time, so say inflation's 2.5% long-term, to buy a 10-year treasury, what yield would an investor want, would an investor demand? Uh, I would say you'd want more than 25 You'd want more than inflation. You want a real return, a return above inflation. But you're buying a treasury. You're not taking a ton of risks. So an extra 1%, 1% above inflation. So call it a 3.5%. 3.5 to 4. Yep. Yeah, 3.5 to 4. And we're at 4 right now in the 10-year treasury. So it's not outrageously 
high. So yeah, maybe it comes down from four to three and a half. So mortgage rates could pull in by you know 0.5%. Um, but yeah, the, the days of easy money and seeing a 10-year treasury sub two, I, I wouldn't build a financial plan on getting a mortgage with 10-year treasury at 2%. But you know, even if it they backed up by half a percent, that's still mortgage rates above six for a thirty yeah. year, and, and you think that's a normalized rate environment? Yeah. Okay. And just looking out at the international markets, um, you know, moving off of I guess real estate and and the U.S. for a bit. I know the strong dollar has impacted some U.S. companies who generate a lot of their sales and revenue overseas. Has a strong dollar hurt international markets this year, and and what's the outlook there? Yeah, it's hurt returns on foreign equities for U.S. investors, because as a U.S. investor, when you make investments in um, non-U.S. companies, you're taking currency risk. So if you're buying a Samsung Electronics or whatever you, you name the company overseas, you're buying in that local currency. So all else equal, you're dealing with the currency differential. So if the U.S. dollar is up 10% relative to a basket of foreign currencies, independent of what the companies do, you're down 10%. The the strong dollar has hurt from a currency standpoint uh, just through conversion. Okay, and what what has led to our strong dollar? Is it the the rate hikes? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. the rate hikes. It's that you know, global investors look around and you know, U.S. Treasuries yielding four percent is attractive for foreigners. So, is there a case for international investing when our rate hikes slow down? I mean, will that weaken the the dollar and be a tailwind for international investors or investing internationally, not international investors? Yeah, the the strong dollar makes a, a good case for foreign investing now because. If you think about it, we we wrote um, a fun blog piece a little while ago about now is a good time to travel to Italy because you 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 know, with the dollar euro at about parity you go and you know things are cheaper than they used to be you can go and whatever buy dinner cheap your hotel is cheaper well stocks are also cheaper too um, just based on your purchasing power you're going over there with dollars that buy more shares so when you look at it at that level um, those markets are cheap and um, you know, one area, if we really want to kind of get get in the, the most controversial part of markets, I'd say today is China. And with everything China has going on, that market is now trading right around book value. I'd look at book value as about a sensible floor. You can have fire sales and go below that. But book value is like you buy the companies, you liquidate them, and that's what you're paying. It's like Benjamin Graham value investing levels. So um, not even recognizing the, the value that the companies have for generating earnings beyond the assets. So it's one of our managers said, it's this isn't like bottom decile cheap. This is like bottom 0.5% in history cheap. So um, you know, we think China's looking attractive, emerging markets are attractive. And the, you know that's an area we have an allocation, of course. And clarify for me, maybe, maybe I missed it. Sorry, what's the connection to China and the strong dollar? It's more just talk, talking about overseas investing. So okay. dollar strong, but I wouldn't, it, it's not like just because of the strong dollar, foreign markets just stepping back and looking at global investing. We're looking at China as one of the areas that sold off the most, down the most, uh, for a variety of reasons, currency being one of them. But there's also political risk um, that's um, you know rising quite a bit in China. That's also led to the sell-off. 
Got it. So we have an allocation, but it's a not nearly at the size of you know our exposure to the U.S. or international developed. You you want exposure there, but you do want to limit it, I guess, to a certain extent. Correct. What advice then do you have for investors right now, Bob? Just in terms of you know the, these market moves from month to month, they look different. There's a lot of it does come down to what inflation does, what rates are are, are going to look like. What are you telling new people that you're you're meeting with? I mean, there's the behavioral side, emotional side, don't get caught up in it. And just in general, we think that asset prices really across the board are attractive now for long-term investors. U.S. stocks, international stocks, bonds, these are all good levels, levels we haven't seen in a long time. Um, We're in a bottoming out process. So there is volatility. There probably will be more volatility this year and early next year, but it's a great time to put in money to work. And... um, Investors are also fortunate that uh, diversification works. So like the for retirees, you can buy stocks and bonds and both good places to be. So um, it's just, a, frankly, a good time to be investing. That will probably surprise some people just given the, the year that that we're having and that stocks and bonds, you know, have both struggled in the in the same calendar year. Talk a, l- a little bit about that. Like if somebody were to push back and say, Bob, well, that sounds great, but diversification with those two asset classes necessarily hasn't worked. And why is it a great time to invest in a, in a down market? So two, yeah. two, two kind of loaded questions there. Well, no, it, it's funny. That just totally hits um, the behavior of investing um, because you can look at it and say, well, it's down 20%. How can you like it? And it's like, exactly. That's why I like, it. you know, stocks and bonds are both down almost 20% there on sale. Like that's why it's attractive. So bond yields, uh, you know, I saw just a, a fun chart the other day, a, a JP Morgan 11-year um, bonds yielding 7%. So you're taking credit risk of JP Morgan, JP Morgan, the bank, they're pretty good business, probably not going to go bankrupt. And you're getting a 7% return on their bonds. That's a pretty good return. And then stock market, if you take out the FANGs, uh, you know, the big tech in US mainly, it's around 11 times earnings, which is cheap. You've just seen good valuations, and that's as a result of it selling off this year. So, yeah, the process to go from fair value to a little expensive to cheap isn't a fun one, and that's why there are losses basically across the board in the stock and bond world. But now it's a nice setup. It's a it's a good setup from here on out. Um, so investors who have cash, it's a good time to put it to work. Investors who had alternative investments, real assets, real estate, any of that stuff that held up and made money, short-term bonds, any of that. Um, take profits in those areas and and put it into the the two main areas, um, core bonds and stocks that have sold off. And that's the diversification point. There are more than just those two asset classes and you've had the opportunity to invest in them. And now you also have the opportunity to unwind them to a certain extent and get into the asset classes that people understand traditionally that are on sale, basically, which was the point that you were talking about. You got it. Love it. And you know, my my advice for investors is maybe not necessarily investment advice, but just control what you can control. You can't control the markets right now, but you can make sure that you get your timely financial planning done by year end. Uh, you, you know, calendar year, sometimes you miss out on tax opportunities if you haven't taken advantage of them. And so instead of getting hung up on your portfolio and watching it, you know, make sure that you get the rest of the financial house in order. 
And for ideas, you can check out our blog at heritagefinancial.net, where we just posted an article with seven things that you can do to maximize your wealth before year end that have nothing to do with watching the markets. You know, I, I love your your outlook on that, Bob. And, you know, I would just add to that, control what you can control and, and focus on getting some stuff that's important related to your wealth scratched off your to-do list. Good advice, Sammy. Anything else on your team's mind as as uh, you look out over the next couple months? One um, in the weeds thing that we're working on now is uh, year-end tax loss selling. Sure. So um, mutual funds typically make year-end distributions um, around December 15th to December 25th, sometime mid-December. Sometimes there'll be capital gain distributions um, in addition to ordinary income distributions. So what we're doing is the managers, as we speak, like in now to, one manager came out today in the next few weeks, they'll be providing estimates for what the distributions will be. And then we'll know the estimate and the date. And for clients who have losses in these positions, um, we'll sell it before the distribution. So they get to book the loss. They're out of the fund when the distribution happens, and then we'll buy back into it afterwards. So you, you kind of get a, a double one on the tax side. You, you take the loss and you miss the distribution as, as opposed to having done tax loss selling, say now, and then buying right back in it just in time to get hit with the distribution. So it's in the weed stuff, you know, our tagline, sure. every detail matters, but it's, um, I think just working hard around tax law selling. So, uh, you know, the least we can do this year is be friendly with our clients on the tax front. Always try to keep more of what you earn, even though it won't necessarily show up in the performance numbers. So thank you, Bob. And thank you all for listening uh, today. If you're enjoying Wealthy Behavior, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And please send in any questions or feedback to wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. We'd love to start answering listener questions. So don't be shy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakovitz. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.